Welcome to the Herbs with Rosalie podcast, a show exploring how herbs heal as medicine, as food, and through nature connection. I'm your host, Rosalie de la Forêt. I'm an herbalist teacher and the best-selling author of the books Alchemy of Herbs and Wild Remedies. I created this podcast to share trusted herbal wisdom so that you can get the best results when relying on herbs for your health. I love offering up practical knowledge to help you dive deeper into the world of medicinal plants and seasonal living. My goal is that you'll walk away from each episode feeling inspired to start working with herbs in your everyday life. Each episode of the podcast is available on my Herbs with Rosalie YouTube channel, as well as your favorite podcast app. Transcripts and recipes for each episode can be found at herbswithrosaliepodcast.com. To get the latest news as well as fun bonuses, be sure to sign up for my weekly herbal newsletter. Okay, grab your cup of tea. Let's dive in. If you've been following my herbal offerings for even a short time, you'll know that I'm not about focusing on fear. While some alternative health practitioners rally around toxins and pollutants, I'd rather focus on joy and the things that I do have control over. But unfortunately, environmental contaminants do exist and we can't simply ignore them away. That's why I'm especially grateful to Sarah Sorcy for coming on the show. She has taken it on to research important contamination issues for gardeners and foragers and then shares that information in a way that's based on empowerment rather than fear. For those of you who don't know Sarah, she's an herbal educator, writer, and the founder of Sweet Flag Herbs. She loves supporting folks who seek meaning, empowerment, and environmental sustainability by connecting with plants. Through her writing project, A Nourishing Harvest, Sarah explores environmental contamination issues that affect gardeners and foragers, translating scientific data into practical and approachable free articles. She also creates beautiful educational boxes that facilitate ancestral connection by the way of the plant world. Sarah has offered hundreds of classes and plant walks through Western New York and beyond. Sarah came to herbalism by way of an environmental studies degree, farm work, and offering therapeutic gardening programming. She's a 2014 graduate of the Blue Ridge School of Herbal Medicine's Holistic Herbalism Program, and she's taken clinical herbalism classes with the Eclectic School of Herbal Medicine. Sarah is grateful to the unnamed elders, foragers, and tenders who have contributed to our collective herbal knowledge. She lives and gardens with her partner in Chautauqua County, New York, homeland of the Seneca Nation of Indians. Well, welcome to the show, Sarah. Thanks so much for having me, Rosalie. I'm really excited to be here. Oh, I am so excited to have you here. And you're coming on for a special topic, which I don't always do. Most of the time we talk about one herb, which I love, but occasionally something catches my eye as something that would be really important to share. And that is this episode. So I'm excited to dive in. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, well, I would love to hear just more about your plant path and what's brought you here to us today. Yeah, I grew up in a family. My family didn't use herbal medicine when I was a child or really alternative medicine, but I do have really strong memories of ways that herbs kind of found their way into our house, you know, like smelling my dad's coffee every morning. I remember just the smell of like lilacs and marigolds, apple mint from my parents' garden, even though I 
did not really take to garden work as a child, but <laughs> those smells certainly were meaningful to me. I remember my grandma's tea ritual. You know, anytime she came to visit at a certain time in the afternoon, she had her cup of black tea. And I remember the way she, you know, wound the string around the tea bag to kind of squeeze out the liquid and she added a little milk and didn't really understand what she was doing at that time. But I just remember being like kind of captivated by it. And clearly I had something to learn because here I am drinking tea every day. Things like, you know, the first time my mom asked me to use, she asked me to chop garlic for her to make a meal. And I had no idea, you know, she handed me this bulb, this like paper hard ball. And I was like, what the heck do I do with this? So just that memory, I was probably older than I cared to admit. I was probably like a freshman in college. I really did not cook growing up, but yeah, just that vivid memory of learning how to peel the paper and that feeling of like the sticky liquid on your fingers when you're chopping garlic and that wonderful smell. Yeah. Just little kind of empowering memories like that too. I'm grateful that my family, my parents prioritize getting out in nature as a family when we could, we would spend maybe one weekend a year at Letchworth state park in, in upstate New York, where I'm from, we would get to the beach at Lake Erie when we could, I grew up not too far from Lake Erie in Western New York. And that definitely was formative for me. I think as far as steering me specifically towards herbalism, sustainable agriculture and my work in sustainable farming really had a big impact on me. One memory that comes to mind is when I was a sophomore in college at Denison University, I was an environmental studies major and didn't really know what my focus was at that point in my major. And I had a professor in my department approach me and ask if I'd be interested in doing an internship at the Rodale Institute that summer. I'm still kind of amazed that my tiny little liberal arts college had this relationship with Rodale. Rodale, a pretty well-known institution that does regenerative agriculture research and also is really intentional about sharing that information with farmers in practical ways. And our college didn't even have an agriculture program. So I don't know how this relationship happened, but it sounded interesting. So I, I went that summer and it was just a really incredible opportunity to get to see how sustainable farming research is done. But I think even more importantly, seeing how those researchers took that information and made sure it didn't just sit in like an academic journal somewhere. You know, they had demonstration gardens and they invited farmers to their fields for workshops to show their techniques. And, you know, they have a press of their own, the Rodale Press, and they own Organic Gardening Magazine. They have all these different ways to make sure this information gets out in the world. And I think later as an herbal teacher, herbal education is really what excites me. And as a writer, that lesson just really stuck with me. Like, what's the point of having knowledge and scientific information if it's not getting into the hands of people who really need it? And yeah, after college, I spent a few years working on organic farms and, you know, have memories of, I remember weeding a, a lettuce field one day and the farmer I was working with said, you know, the the dandelions and the amaranth we're weeding out are a lot more nutritious than the, the lettuce we're working so hard to, to save here. And I think probably many of us herbal people kind of have that moment of realizing like, wow, like, you know, plants are so much more than 
as much as I love annual vegetables and I'll always have a vegetable garden, it was just kind of amazing to realize how much more there was to learn about edible plants and how much opportunity there was just right in my neighborhood and right in my community, how many different plants were there and that there were even medicinal properties to explore too. Yeah, I learned through that time that education and connecting people with plants is kind of more my thing than production agriculture. So I steered myself towards like a horticultural therapy certificate and an herbal medicine program. I studied at the Blue Ridge School of Herbal Medicine in 2014 and started my business, Sweet Flag Herbs, soon after that. And yeah, I haven't looked back. <laughs> yeah. Well, do you remember what helped you make that jump from like basic, you know, to start with Blue Ridge or to start with mm -hmm. your herbal studies? To jump from like into that study? Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, it sounds like things were poking up a little bit here and there, but when was that moment you're like, no, I'm going to go to school for this? Yeah. Uh, I was actually working. So I lived in Western North Carolina at the time. I had moved there to do an internship in horticultural therapy in 2013. And my supervisor was actually in an herbal program. Maybe it was like a weekend program at the time. And, you know, on Monday she would come in and was excited to share what she learned. Mm. And I discovered that I had a, a farm job lined up for the next season and my work days were exactly opposite the Blue Ridge School class schedule. Like the Blue Ridge School was like a few full days a week and my work schedule was the exact opposite of that. And I was like, ooh, this would work perfectly. So yeah, I think my supervisor really gave me that nudge to maybe consider going further with it. I love that because it really is like the more excitement that we spread and share about herbalism, the more people join in. So yeah. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Sarah, I'm really excited to talk about your project, A Nourishing Harvest. So I'm wondering if you can start with that and, and tell us what that is. Yeah. So this project came about, the idea for it happened when I was teaching classes here in Western New York. I teach a lot of classes on herb gardening and foraging. And maybe once a class or pretty regularly, people would ask things like, when I'm buying potting soil, you know, which potting soil brands should I maybe steer clear of as far as contaminants? How do I know a potting soil brand is safe? Is it safe to grow in plastic containers? How long do lawn chemicals stay in the soil? I'm renting an apartment where it hasn't been sprayed in two years. Like, is that long enough for as foragers? We maybe have this vague idea that we shouldn't harvest like right along the road. And people would ask like, well, how far from the road do I have to be? Like, is there data on this? And I was like, ooh, you know, I would love to know if there's data on this. There are questions like, I, I get especially excited about questions where we're getting more familiar about our local communities and like practices there or our local history. So sometimes people ask me like, you know, I have permission to harvest at this local park or a state forest, but do you know anything about the hit, like the land use history? Was it ever a landfill? Was it ever a farm? I know that my community used to be home to this industry. Do you know anything about, like, is that like an environmental contamination risk? So just this wide range of questions that I certainly didn't have answers for, but I was also asking myself the same questions and it kind of stirred 
stirred like the environmental justice kind of like passion in me from my college education of feeling like, you know, it feels like a right. We should be, we should all have access to being able to harvest clean and safe food and medicine, whether from our gardens or from our local communities. And I just wanted to maybe create a location where people, where gardeners and foragers could find some answers to these questions in one easy location where maybe scientific data and government resources. And I'm also trying to do some interviews with experts where that information can be distilled into a more like user-friendly format. So that's the goal with the project. Oh, I love this so much. And yes, when I came across your work, I was immediately like, oh, these are all the questions I get asked and don't know the answers to. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so yeah. I will selflessly have Sarah on the podcast to ask them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I have been perusing a Nourishing Harvest website and so much fantastic information there. So I'm excited for folks to go and check you out. But before they do, we've got, I've got questions. Yeah. Shoot. <laughs> now, like my mind is just opening up to all these different questions. I guess like who, I guess I want to first ask, who is the person that you are doing this work for? What are the concerns? Because we mm -hmm. could say gardeners, but not every gardener might not have the same concerns. Yeah. So who does this work like impact and who's going to be like rubbing their hands together, excited to check it out? Yeah. Great question. Well, I think your question also makes me realize maybe my scope needs to be focused a little bit more because I just get so excited about like, you know, I want to offer resources for urban gardeners and rural gardeners and suburban gardeners. But one thought that comes to mind, I think what, what gets me excited about environmental health and like the health of our communities as a whole is that things like, you know, water quality or the effects on soil from like industrial activity. These are things that tend to affect like larger swaths of the community, regardless of, well, certainly income level does matter sometimes, like folks who are lower income and folks of color, like traditionally marginalized people are much more likely to have issues as far as like contamination concerns. But there are also plenty of instances where like we're, we're all impacted by poor water quality. I recently did a series on PFAS, which are, it's a, a group of contaminants that's getting a lot of attention right now because it's quite ubiquitous in the, in the U.S. water supply. It's hard to find a water supply in our country that doesn't have detectable levels of PFAS in them. And the, these are sometimes called forever chemicals. Exactly. Yeah. It's in a lot of products that are like water resistant, stain resistant. It's used in firefighting foams and, you know, communities of every income level might have a fire where a firefighting foam was used at some point. Yeah. So, you know, as much as it's, it's a bummer to hear that these chemicals are so ubiquitous, part of me feels hope knowing that because it affects everybody. It also affects people with more power and more maybe impact. And I hope that those folks will use their power to make changes that really help everybody. So other than that very broad thought to answer your question, mm -hmm. I guess I will also say, I feel interested in making gardening and foraging as, as easy and straightforward as possible. I think in general, these are activities that you know, aren't really encouraged in our culture. And for me, you know, I didn't grow up in 
I didn't grow up gardening. I didn't grow up foraging. So it doesn't feel, it's not like an innate part of how I was conditioned or like, you know, brought up. And I think that's true for a lot of us in, in the United States. So yeah, if I can maybe answer some questions from folks who are just trying to get into gardening or foraging and me, I hope to maybe remove barriers for folks who might find these questions as like just one more barrier that might be stopping them from getting into it. Yeah. And the question of contaminants can be scary, can be overwhelming, can also be something that we just want to like duck our heads in the sand and not <laughs> in the garden bed and not think about. I know for a lot of us, we can just assume that our gardens are safe, that our soils are safe, that the water is safe. So with that, let's talk about safety a little bit. And one thing that you addressed on your website was how EPA approved doesn't necessarily mean safe. And this is in specifically in regards to thinking about pesticides and herbicides. Yeah. I wonder if you speak to that a little bit. Yes. So ideally the EPA, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, we would be using a precautionary principle. I've heard writers or read books by writers like Sandra Steingraber and Nora McKendrick on this topic. I highly recommend them. So this precautionary principle would be if a chemical would need to be proven safe before it's allowed to be produced and used widely. And that's what we would do if we were you know, valuing human health and the health of our environment over corporate ease and profit. And unfortunately in the US, this isn't the way toxic chemicals are regulated. New chemicals do come onto the market without assurance that they're safe. And this applies both to chemicals that are intentionally added to our soils and plants, like lawn and agricultural chemicals, but it also applies to chemicals that just end up there from water pollution or air pollution, things like that, like automobile activity. Because of that, what happens is that that burden to prove that a chemical is harmful in some way, that ends up falling on us as community members. And that might be you know, noticing a, a higher, an unusually high rate of a health issue in our communities or in wildlife. And it's really hard to prove that, you know, once we, once a chemical is out in the environment and out in, out in the world being used, there's all these other variables that it's interacting with, all these other chemicals in the environment, all these other variables in our lives that maybe could also cause cancer or whatever. So yeah, it's a very, it's a tough burden to place on our communities. So it's a, it's a shame that we, we haven't quite transitioned to that precautionary principle in our regulations. And there is, so one law in the books, we have a federal insecticide, fungicide, and rodenticide act that was passed in like the forties. And in theory, you know, it requires all pesticides to be registered with the EPA. They're supposed to be tested before they're sold. But something Nora McKendrick writes about, she notes that the EPA is really limited in their power to actually put that into practice Mm -hmm. because industries often challenge the EPA in court when they try to limit pesticide use. Companies end up doing a lot of their own research on the safety of their chemicals because the EPA hasn't had a budget big enough to actually do their own testing. And when companies do their research, it's often not made public. It's not peer reviewed, which are, you know, having a peer reviewed study is a pretty standard for like quality scientific research. So 
you know, companies can say that they're protect, protecting a confidential formula, like a, you know, a trade secret kind of thing. And then that data that the companies collect themselves is then what the EPA is using for approval. So there's definitely room for growth as far as I think a main issue I pinpoint with what I just shared is I think we need a, a larger budget for the EPA. I know it was cut in recent years, um, in the last 10 years, and it sounds like we need more money going towards this agency. Yeah. Thank you for including a solution there, which I can extrapolate to be, you know, contacting representatives mm-hmm. um, interest in this increased budget to the EPA. And I know we have some other very practical things that we're going to talk about in terms of like what we can do. Just kind of want to offer that as reassurance, reassurance yeah. because this can be scary and fear-based. Yeah. Anybody who knows me knows I don't like to stay in that place, but we do have yeah. to be informed. So I'm really grateful that you're here informing us. In a, in a non, you know, I mean, it's it's scary and not great, but in a non-alarmist way as we find solutions to these problems. Absolutely. I will have some uplifting things to share too. So yeah. stay tuned. <laughs> <laughs> so if we think about contamination, in, especially in regards to somebody who is, has a garden, whether they're a homeowner or maybe they have, they're working in a community garden or somebody who maybe is foraging in parks, like what are some big concerns there? Just like big yeah. picture. Yeah. Well, I think the main concern that comes to my mind with that question. So when I've been in garden centers, I just out of curiosity, sometimes I'll pick up like a bottle of some herbicide and just look at the label to see like what's in here, you know, just so whether I'm doing a little research on it or what. And something I've noticed is that the active ingredient takes up less than half of the whole formula. So the label will say something like other ingredients, 63% or inert ingredients. I've, I've seen as high as like 93%. So that means that most of that formula just isn't disclosed on the label. So I wondered like, huh, what's in there, you know? So when I've done a little research on it, I learned that pesticide and herbicide formulations often include a group of compounds called adjuvants. And these are compounds, chemicals that help the pesticide do what they're supposed to do. So it might be an emulsifier. Can I just interrupt for a second, Sarah? Oh, I really, think yeah. that's kind of funny because in herbalism, we do formulations and we like, <laughs> and that's like a word for, for you know, like, <laughs> that's where that comes from. So exactly. we're like, add herbs to a formula to help it do what it does. So anyway, exactly. sorry to interrupt, but that was just yeah. humorous to me. Yeah, like a Continue. supporting herb. A yeah, supporting a supporting chemical. Herb. Yeah, <laughs> a supporting chemical. Okay. Just never heard it in that context before. <laughs> yeah, that's a really good way to think about it. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, in this case, Sometimes the adjuvant will, maybe it will like keep the pesticide, the active ingredient from being degraded in the sun. Yeah, with our kind of like chemistry minds as herbalists, some adjuvants are like emulsifiers. So they'll prevent the active ingredient from just like beating up on the leaf surface. So it'll like spread out evenly on the leaf. There's carriers, there's even like artificial fragrances in pesticides. I don't know why we need our herbicides to smell beautiful, but... (laughs) So then I, as I'm reading about this category, I just wanted to learn more about like, well, what are, you know, what are the rules around these chemicals? If they're not listed on the back of the label, like what, you know, what do we know about them? So what I learned was that those inert, quote unquote, inert ingredients, they have to be registered with the EPA if they're in the formula, in the formulation itself, if they're in that bottle with the pesticide. 
But if, if an adjuvant is purchased in a separate bottle, what commonly happens is um, chemical, lawn chemical applicators will mix a separate adjuvant product with their pesticide at application time. So rather than buying it all together, they mix it separately. And when that happens, when the adjuvants are mixed later, they don't need to be registered and approved by the FDA if they're not going to be applied to food crops. So this is something that foragers in particular should really just be aware of. It's an empowering piece of information. So, you know, in general, foragers are harvesting. We're open to, to foraging our food in places that aren't farm fields, whether it be a lawn or uh, maybe a forest or park where we have approval, you know, you name it, right? If we have permission, then maybe it's on the table. And really, to me, this just means like, maybe now we know a few more questions to ask in addition to just asking permission at our park. Okay, well, now we know that we need a little more information and we should find out, you know, what is their, uh, what are their practices for managing invasives or weeds? Um, are there areas of the park to avoid as far as foraging? Yeah, I hope that you know, knowing this, knowing that long chemicals aren't regulated in this way, as far as the adjuvants go. Yeah, I hope we just feel empowered to, to get, gather more information to feel even more, more secure in our, our foraging practice. Yeah. Mm. yeah. You're making me think of this situation where I don't know how to describe it, really. It was like, I used to walk along this trail. And it was kind of like, like a trail but it was like an ATV trail. So it was, you know, kind of like a road, but it wasn't like a road where people would drive on unless you're like maybe an ATV, which I would never see ATVs there. But anyway, it was a road that on the sides had wild rose bushes, had elders, you know, had a lot of things that I loved to harvest. And it was like out in the hills, right? So this is like far from people. I often never saw people there. And it just seemed like the best place to harvest, mm -hmm. right? And I did for a long time. And then one spring I went there just to go on a walk and I smelled that smell, hmm. that chemical smell of the, I think of it as Roundup, but I don't know if it always is, but it's that smell. And sure enough, like the plants were just like, they had recently, you know, be recently sprayed because I could smell it, but they were also like twisted, you know, becoming twisted and yellowed all along this pathway where I was harvesting plants I was just devastated one to think that I might have been harvesting plants in a place that was getting treated like that two that somebody thought they needed to come spray this area that like in my mind clearly did not need it which is kind of a whole other subject of how counties are often paid to use so much of you know these chemicals and so they have an incentive to do it but anyway it was just devastating and I think you're right to say that that's it's nice to have or it's empowering to ask those questions and find out that information before instead of after. And then it's yeah. important to understand what it looks like if an area is being sprayed, those yellow plants. If it's right when it's happening, you can, or recently, you can see that plants are changing, they're twisted, they're yellow. After, they, you might not have that smell, but you'll see like a, a strip of dead plants. It's just totally not natural. I mean, it really is just like once you have that awareness, it's it jumps out of the landscape. Yes, absolutely. You. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry to hear about that special spot. And yeah. yeah, something else that what that brings to mind is I just think there's so much potential for partnership with like our public spaces, parks and forests. You know, the most likely plants to be treated with herbicides are invasive species and how many wonderful 
invasive, wonderful in terms of food and medicine. I've harvested Japanese knotweed and garlic mustard and multi-flora rose in public spaces. And we can really, have, you know, there's like this potential for mutually beneficial relationships. So yeah, I think another perk of communicating with somebody who's in charge of that space is, oh, you know, like if they know that maybe there's a group of maybe three or four foragers who want to come take all that garlic mustard, not only do they, they're saved the work and that space has saved the chemicals. If the person applying it knows it's going to happen, they know that the garlic mustard, at least some amount of it will be gone. They know that people are going to be eating from there. So they might think about the space differently. So yeah, I just think there's so much potential when we um, start communicating in that way. I'm still mm. learning, but. You know, that makes me think of Sarah, something, Sarah. So I live in a very small community and one of my neighbors got the heads up that the U.S. Forest Service was going to spray an invasive plant in the forest and they were friends with the person. So there was this conversation that happened and they worked out that they put it out to the whole neighborhoods. So we're talking like a couple miles long because we're pretty remote here, but they put it out to all of us like would anyone be interested in coming to you know, hand weed this plant? It wasn't a plant that you would forage, mm. but it was a plant that needed to be removed. So they asked and, you know, 12 people went up there and removed that by hand. Wow. And, you know, I put it out there. It's like, they're going to spray or we can put some work in and remove it ourselves. And they did. So, that's cool. yeah, so there is, there, that's totally a possibility. In this situation, it was kind of like a small community and the person knew the person. But that's one thing I really love about your project, Nourishing Harvest, is like you talk about how you reach out and you're kind of this, have this empowering sense of just like you're looking for those answers and how surprised you are, how often those answers and that those resources are available out there if we just know where to look. So Absolutely. I appreciate that aspect of your site as well, because it's, it is empowering for all of us to know. For sure. Well, I, the next question I want to ask is the question, <sighs> the question that everybody asks. I bet you know what it's going to be. I think I do. The million dollar question. Go ahead. Million dollar question. <laughs> so how long does someone need to wait to harvest an area that's been sprayed with chemicals? Ding, ding, ding. That's the question. Yep. <laughs> Rosalie, I want so badly to give you a hard and fast answer. Yeah. Oh, I want you to give me a hard and fast answer. <laughs> yeah. So as you can imagine, it's complicated, but I'm going to share, I'm going to share like my general understanding so far and kind of like where I've come to personally, as far as, you know, how long I, I like to wait and different people will have different levels of comfort with this based on just really the limit of our knowledge. So the good news is in general, we, since like the 1960s, we've moved away from pesticides and herbicides that are really persistent in the environment, things that resist breaking down once we apply them. So DDT was the poster child for persistent pesticides. It was super popular in the 1960s, but it was banned partly because it was shown to bioaccumulate in animals and cause various health problems in humans and wildlife. Rachel Carson wrote her book, Silent Spring, about this, this chemical or partly inspired by this chemical. So these days, the long chemicals we use tend to break down more quickly and they're often more water soluble. So there's the potential for them to get flushed out of our gardens or our lawns and into the water table more quickly. And great. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds 
maybe better for our gardens, maybe not so good for our ecosystems and our water supply. But a question, so one question I want to explore more this year is, so when I've looked into kind of doing a little research about other chemicals like PFAS, I learned that more water-soluble chemicals tend to get taken up into plants more easily, up into the aerial parts. And I would like to do a little more research to find out to what extent that's also true of like today's herbicides compared to something like DDT. So stay tuned. I, I want to learn a little bit more about that. But so besides feeling like I have to learn more about that question, something else that I guess an area where I see more research needed is we often do, we, you know, we as in chemical companies who's ever doing the research, testing often happens when it does on the original chemical, but we often aren't testing like the metabolites, like the, the thing that that chemical then breaks down to in the environment. We certainly aren't testing. We're not necessarily looking at like, how does that original chemical interact with the other chemicals that might be there from other environmental contamination or heavy metals or, or the other metabolites from other things? There's just like so much complexity to how things interact with each other in the environment. And of course, this is all impacted by the, um, the composition of our soil. So our pH and you know, is it sandy? Is it clay? How much organic matters in there? These things all have an impact too on how quickly things might break down or move out of our soil. So that is why I, my easy answer is not here with us, <laughs> but, you know, but given all those variables and uncertainties, I'll just share a few things that I guess, yeah, where I have come with it. So the USDA, when they're certifying a farm to be organic, they require that the land, so let's say that the land had previously been used for conventional farming with conventional chemicals applied to it. The organic operation has to wait three years before they can sell an organic crop from that land. So that's, I guess, one, you know, if we're looking for some sort of ballpark amount of time, if a, if a piece of property had been sprayed regularly for years, I like the idea of waiting three years and maybe I like it because it's just something to work with, you know, like, do I really think that every little metabolite and every little sign of every herbicide is like absolutely gone after three years? Probably not. But I try to, you know, I feel like beyond that three year point, it's pretty hard to find soil in our country that is just 100% pristine. And, you know, at that point, I feel like what I want to bring is just gratitude for the space, gratitude for the plants, rather than coming to the space with fear of like what might still be there. So that's just kind of where I come from. I will also share a few like optimistic things, like things we can do with our spaces to actually make toxins less accessible to our plants. Um, so some concrete to-dos. I was so excited to learn that adding organic matter like compost makes many contaminants less bioavailable to plants. And like, what a win-win, because we're already yeah. supposed to be adding all this organic matter, right, to our soils. The contaminants, many contaminants sort of get bound up in the organic matter. They like sorb to the carbon or, you know, the organic matter there. So yeah, just one more great reason to do what we're already doing. Maybe if we're making compost from our kitchens or like buying compost to add to our gardens. 
I found a study recently that they looked at the effect of, they had a wheat field and they wanted to see what effect it had to add composted pig manure to the, you know, to the system. And they found that when composted manure was added, an herbicide called prometrin, it accumulated significantly less in the plant than when there wasn't compost added. So yeah, just really great news for us. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That's wonderful. So this is also true in addition to just maybe reducing how much of our herbicides might get taken up into our plants. This is also, uh, also true for lead and some other heavy metals. Some heavy metals like lead are more likely to be taken up into plants when the soil is really acidic, like under a pH of five, which is relevant for my husband and I, because when we moved to our property, some parts of the soil tested at like 4.5. It's really acidic here. So a perk of adding that that organic matter, that compost, is that composted stuff generally makes the pH go closer to neutral. So it kind of achieves that too. And also the microbial activity in compost can help to break down certain contaminants more. Of course, heavy metals aren't getting broken down. They, you know, it's just an element. It's not going to get broken down any further, but some of our other contaminants might be broken down more quickly when we have that nice, healthy soil with good compost and microbial activity. I think I'll pause there. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm, this could be a whole other topic. So, but I am curious if you looked into plant remediation and how plants can help with that. And if that is a really huge topic, you could just say yes in a couple sentences. <laughs> yeah. So I did look at a friend of mine directed me to a book called Earth Repair by, I believe, Layla Darwish is the author. And it's a pretty like practical hands-on book for folks who maybe are trying to remediate land that they know is contaminated with a certain contaminant. It's very helpful to do some soil testing first to know what is there. So we know like maybe which plants to plant that happen to be good at pulling lead or zinc or aluminum or whatever out of the soil. But yeah, I, I found that book really exciting and interesting. The sense I got, the sense I've gotten from some resources is that it may not be practical. So for example, like sunflowers are known for being pretty good at pulling certain contaminants out of the soil. You know, we need to, once that happens, after the sunflowers have been there for a year, we need to find somewhere else to dispose of the sunflowers, unfortunately, because now they contain the contaminant that was in the soil. So I think about that issue, you know, do we like designate like a, a compost pile on our property to where like, we're not going to be using that compost, but it's just like kind of a disposal spot. But yeah, I, I am not sure. I think so far my approach, if I were gardening somewhere where I knew there was, you know, a history of contamination from industrial activity or like heavy metals. I think my approach at this point would probably be to use raised beds. I'm not sure how many cycles it would take to like how many years of planting sunflowers we would need to do in order to pull out all of that contaminant. And yeah, I I guess maybe at this point, I, because I don't have the expertise around it, I think my approach is usually more just like plant on top of it, you know, put down like a barrier and then put down some new soil. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, thanks for confirming that one for me. We, we had planted out our garden and then we came very suspicious of the soils for certain reasons. And now we have all raised garden beds. That was also the, the approach that I took. Yeah, for sure. Well, Sarah, I assume that a lot of people listening, maybe not all, but a lot of people are not really keen on having contaminated soils and um, growing are harvesting herbs in contaminated soils and are not wanting to contribute to that by using things like Roundup, which are very popular for folks to use around where they live. And I'm curious, this is something that comes up a lot, especially with my Rooted Medicine Circle students, is that they don't want that on their, you know, they want to eat the plantain or work with the plantain and the dandelions and the chickweed that's in their yard but they live in places that have like homeowners associations, mm. which will have things in place saying, you know, like you can't have a certain amount of weeds and be, and, you know, basically they're an island surrounded by people who are pretty excited about Roundup and using, and who just don't have that same value of, you know, not wanting to contaminate the soils. It's hard for me to wrap my mind around that, honestly, but mm-hmm. I'm curious what advice you might have for folks who are trying their best to, you know, not have contaminated soils, but who might be surrounded by others who don't have those same prerogatives. Yeah, that's a great question. So I really like there's a resource offered by a nonprofit called Beyond Pesticides and it's called Pesticide Free Zone Owner's Manual. They Beyond Pesticides offers a pesticide-free zone sign that you can purchase on their website to put on your property, which for some people might be a nice way to kind of promote this way of managing land without conventional pesticides and maybe even inviting some conversation about it. And the, the nonprofit also acknowledges that putting a sign like that out might stir some conversations, questions, maybe even a little bit of tension, depending on who your neighbors are. So I love that in this owner's manual, they not only give reasons why to go pesticide free, but they also give tips for navigating these conversations with neighbors. So for people who want to look further beyond this, you know, this talk now, that's a really nice resource. But they, one thing they suggest is keeping it personal. You know, if somebody if we whether we initiate the conversation or if someone approaches us like you know why why no pesticides we often respond better to someone sharing like a personal story or maybe a reason involving our children or our pets or our you know our herb and veggie gardens that we're you know we want to keep clean for our food kind of being vulnerable and like bringing a little bit of our personal story into it rather than just kind of rattling off a bunch of data And I guess something else that comes to mind with these conversations is kind of just maybe things I've heard about navigating conflict in general. I feel like for me, when I'm going into a conversation, expecting it not to go well, maybe I come feeling maybe already like a little bit defensive or I don't know, guarded or like bristly or something. But so something I try to practice is like going into a conversation, assuming we're on the same team with a neighbor, that might mean, you know, assuming that we both want the best for our neighborhoods and for our yards and our property. And we both have that same goal. So if we have this conversation, we're really just kind of like sharing intel, kind of, you know, like we're, we're both trying to get to the same place. I love that. Yeah, for sure. I guess one more thing I'll, I'll just note from that resource, they recommend, you know, we, we can, we don't have to feel like 
We need to be experts when we have these conversations. We can really just keep it practical. Again, this kind of touches on like the keep it personal point, but you know, maybe we don't want to use pesticides partly because it's expensive and, you know, we can use that money to buy some native plants or maybe our, our sister has cancer and that really kind of got us looking more into some things we can do in our daily lives to just help to keep our homes and our neighborhood healthy and kind of change that trajectory. So yeah, those are a few thoughts. Well, thank you, Sarah. And again, a nourishingharvest.com is a fabulous place to get more resources about this. And the last topic that I'd love to touch on before we go, Sarah, is something that you've helped open my eyes about, which is we think of contaminants being in the soils, maybe because of, like you've been saying, industrial use, or it was an orchard that was sprayed, or or maybe even we sprayed Roundup there, whatever it is, but it's something that happened to the soils. But there's another kind of sneaky way that contaminants can get in, and that's through our garden hoses. Hmm. Yeah. So I, I really enjoyed writing about this topic because, you know, with as, as we noted before, kind of the complexity that can come into these questions. Sometimes it's nice to just think about something that's just a little bit more straightforward. <laughs> it's easier for me to write about. And I hope it's also just sometimes it's nice to have like very straightforward, practical steps that we can take to maybe make a change today around these topics. So what I learned about garden hose safety is we don't necessarily need to buy a new hose in order to reduce the amount of contamination getting into the water from the hose. So, you know, some hoses are made out of materials that might leach into the water. And a couple of things we can do are store the hose out of direct sunlight and also flush the water out before using the hose again, if we have water sitting in the hose for, for a little while in between use. And really this just touches on what we know as herbalists. You know, we know that water is a pretty decent solvent and when we add heat you know like boiling a cup of tea that can improve our our extraction so when we store the hose out of direct sunlight we're you know we're taking away that variable you know uv rays are also such a powerful force to break down materials and i like the flush the water out suggestion because i am not perfect about this like we especially early in the spring when we have little seedlings out in the garden I do not put my hose away every single time I use it. <laughs> so just knowing that, you know, when I have left the hose out for, you know, maybe for a day and it's been sitting in the sun, knowing that I can flush out that water, I kind of feel it when it changes from like lukewarm to, to cool or cold water. That's usually when you've got the fresh water and I'll start watering plants then. So, yeah. And if folks are like ready to buy a new hose, there are also some things you can keep in mind when you're looking at labels. The Ecology Center in Michigan had a really helpful study in 2016. They looked at 32 different hoses and what they contained and how much of different contaminants ended up in the water for some of these hoses. And just a few simple tips that came from that study. In general, it's a nice idea to avoid PVC or vinyl hoses if we can. They found that the only hoses they tested that contained lead, bromine, antimony, and phthalates, which are all potentially harmful contaminants, PVC hoses were the only ones that, that had those contaminants in them. If we can find a rubber hose or a polyurethane hose that is labeled drinking water safe, 
that looks like a, a better option. If we do go with the rubber hose, the Ecology Center didn't turn up these contaminants of concern in rubber hoses, but I've also read that um, there's a difference between a natural rubber hose and one that is synthetic or like recycled rubber. A lot of synthetic rubber hoses are made out of old automobile tires. And as we can imagine, tires weren't designed for food production. They're, they have a totally different intention when they were made. So it just isn't really the best material to be using because it does contain a range of contaminants, our, our car tires. So a natural rubber hose is a better option there too. These are great tips and I appreciate them because it's we don't like to be fearful of everything around us. And it's like, oh my gosh, even our garden hose can mm -hmm. create contaminants. I know. But with just by empowering us with a little bit of information, we can make better choices. And I like how you said it's more simple, straightforward, and we can take very like practical steps in that way. Okay. And I want to thank you for supplying us with a handout on garden hose safety. And everyone can download that at herbswithrosaliepodcast.com with those tips to help figure all of that out. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for sharing such crucial information, empowering information. I really appreciate how you do share it in an empowering way versus an alarmist way. Because we just, as herbalists and gardeners and foragers, we need to know this in a way that we can move forward. Before we go, I'd love to hear about any projects that you're working on, Sarah. Ooh, Yeah. Well, I guess since we're on the topic of a nourishing harvest, I guess I can share that beyond my, so a nourishingharvest.com is where I post free articles every month, one free article a month. And I've been excited to just have a place to put additional resources for folks who want to learn more. So that might be like, I'm hoping this year to do a few more interviews with experts. If people want to check out specific studies that I might reference or even like plant walks or garden talks that I am able to record. I've been posting those on Patreon. So folks, if folks are interested in that, it's patreon.com slash nourishing harvest. Oh, wonderful. That's something well worth supporting as a, just a critical topic that affects us all. Thank you. Well, before we go, one last question that I'm asking everyone in season eight, which is what has been your most important herbal mistake? Yeah, it's such a great question. There's so many to choose from, but <laughs> the one that I felt called to share is more like a chronic, like a chronic issue or like a tendency. And that is, I tend to be like kind of a bookish person and I could probably go the rest of my life just reading about herbs and reading about herb stories and accounts of, you know, like history of plants without actually ever going outside. And Every time, you know, I'm a gardener and I like to hike and every time I get out there, I feel so much better, but my little mind, my little controlling mind doesn't really love to like surrender control for a little bit and like be in a different mode. It's kind of like meditation. Like mm -hmm. I feel so much better when I meditate, but it takes that extra little gumption to drop, drop my computer work or whatever and actually change modes and get outside. So, so yeah, I think I'm sharing this sort of like for accountability, Rosalie, like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. but yeah, you know, I found, I think like many herbalists, like I think most of the, most of the medicine in my experience is really from spending that time from actually getting out in nature and having that connection and getting to work with the plants and have that experiential time. So 
yeah, I'll do my best to make as much of it as I can this year. Oh, I love that. I can, I can relate to it as well. So yeah, thank you so much for sharing your most important herbal mistake. And thanks for being on the show and being here with us. And again, sharing such valuable information. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. It's an honor. Thanks for being here. Don't forget to head over to the show notes at herbswithrosaliepodcast.com to download your important handout on garden hose safety. There you'll also be able to sign up for my weekly newsletter, which is the best way to stay in touch. You can also visit Sarah directly at anourishingharvest.com. If you'd like more herbal episodes to come your way, then one of the best ways to support this podcast is by subscribing on YouTube or your favorite podcast app. I deeply believe that this world needs more herbalists and plant-centered folks, and I'm so glad that you're here as part of this herbal community. Also, a big round of thanks to the people all over the world who make this podcast happen week to week. Nicole Paul is the project manager who oversees the whole operation from guest outreach to writing show notes to actually uploading each episode and so many other things I don't even know. She really holds this whole thing together. Francesca is our fabulous video and audio editor. She not only makes listening more pleasant, she also adds beauty to the YouTube videos with plant images and video overlays. Tatiana Rusikova is the botanical illustrator who creates gorgeous plant and recipe illustrations for us. I love them. I know that you do too. Christy edits the recipe cards and then Jenny creates them as well as the thumbnail images for YouTube. Michelle is the tech wizard behind the scenes and Karen is our student services coordinator and customer support. For those of you who like to read along, Jennifer is who creates the transcripts each week. Xavier, my handsome French husband, is the cameraman and website IT guy. Thanks to Rising Appalachia for their beautiful song, Resilience. Find more of their music at risingappalachia.com. One of the best ways to retain and fully understand something you've just learned is to share it in your own words. With that in mind, I invite you to share your takeaways with me and the entire Herbs with Rosalie community. You can leave comments on my YouTube channel on the herbswithrosaliepodcast.com show notes page, or simply hit reply to my Wednesday email. I read every comment that comes in, and I'm excited to hear your thoughts, whether it's about gardening, environmental contamination, garden hoses, or whatever. Okay, you've lasted to the very end of the show, which means you get a gold star and this herbal tidbit. Well, Sarah's parting words about the importance of putting down books and going outside to be with the plants made me think of something I officially call Mary Oliver Moments. As many of you probably know, Mary Oliver is a naturalist poet who has inspired many with her straightforward, heart-opening poetry. I love that by reading her poetry, I'm inspired to go outside and cherish all there is to find there. And the reason why I have a proper official name for this is because I literally write it in my to-do lists. I'll write m.o.m, mom, for Mary Oliver moments. In parting, I'll leave you with one of my favorite poems by Mary Oliver. How I Go to the Wood Ordinarily, I go to the woods alone, with not a single friend, for they are all smilers and talkers and therefore unsuitable. I don't really want to be witness talking with the catbirds or hugging the old black oak tree. I have my way of praying, as you no doubt have yours. Besides, 
When I am alone, I can become invisible. I can sit on the top of a dune as motionless as an uprise of weeds until the foxes run by unconcerned. I can hear the almost unhearable sound of the roses singing. If you have ever gone to the woods with me, I must love you very much. <laughs>